Today in the church calendar is known as Trinity Sunday. It's the Sunday that we take at least a moment to step back and recognize the importance of the church's doctrine of the Trinity. You would have to look really far and wide to find a Christian church that is not Trinitarian. There are a couple here and there, but otherwise it is perhaps the one thing that we as Christians all share together, that we have this understanding of God, not as one, but as three essences. God as parent, child, and spirit. I was asked a few years ago uh, when I was in Colombia to go to the mosque that was in Colombia, and my purpose for going there is they wanted me to tell them about Christianity. I have to tell you that that's a pretty heady thing to be asked to do, to be the person to go and tell a group of folks who don't really know anything about the Christian faith what it's about. The very first question out of their mouths was, why is it that you Christians continue to claim to be monotheists when you clearly don't worship one God, you worship three? Well, you understand how they got there, right? We talk about the three parts of God's nature a lot, so it's an understandable kind of a problem. I said to them, well, there are certain things in the world that are similar that have one that divides into more parts. For instance, take water. Water can be liquid, it can be solid like ice, it can be steam. I thought that was a fairly brilliant answer. But it's not the only thing. The, take a tree. There are roots, there's a trunk, there are branches. Take an egg. There's a shell, there's a yolk, there's an egg white. Um, imagine a family. There's a mother, there's a father, there's a child. Take yourself, for instance. Take me. I am a husband, I'm a father, I'm a brother. There are lots of examples in the world where there could be one thing, but it has more than one essence. What I want you to hear about Trinity Sunday today, at least, is that it was the appearance the arrival of the Holy Spirit that actually set all of that Trinitarian talk in, in motion. Notice the word Trinity, that notion of being a Trinitarian church is never find, found in the Bible anywhere. It's the church's thing. We, seeing the need to interpret the work of God, looked at what was happening in reality and said, God is bigger than we think. And so the notion of Trinity is something we created because that's what the church in every age must do, is we have to interpret God's activity in the world. A lot of what happened in Pentecost, you could compare to a border crossing. Um, we, we listen a, a lot these days to conversations about immigration. It's, it's on the, the front page every day almost. And who, who's sitting here would argue that we have something of a crisis at our border? We do. We couldn't possibly just open the border willy-nilly to everyone, but then it raises the question, who do we decide is worthy to cross and who's not? And that gets to be really tricky business. I'm not here to, to dwell on that, but just to remind us that we hear this term border crossing an awful lot these days. In Laredo, Texas, there is an organization called the Holding Institute. It is led by a woman named Catherine Archer, and what the, the Holding Institute does is they deal with 
the largest portion of immigrants crossing the border, it's not Mexicans, it's Central Americans. So you have Guatemalans and you have Nicaraguans, you have El Salvador, you have those folks who are leaving a struggling place in a place in some cases that is life-threatening and they make their way across and who would blame them for trying. The Holding Institute receives these Central Americans and helps them in whatever ways they can. They teach them English as a second language because, of course, if you can't command the language of wherever you are, it makes your life a lot harder. They do job training. They provide shelter. More importantly than all of that, they provide opportunities for these Central Americans to connect with Laredans. And it's at that point where they connect that the people of Laredo hear the stories of these who are fleeing for their lives and their hearts begin to melt because all they have known of these people beforehand were stories from a distance. Uh, they are just people crossing our border. We don't need them, but they don't know their stories. And when they begin to hear them, something changes. They connect with each other and borders are crossed that are nowhere near geography. They're a different kind of border, a relational kind of a border. Something very similar to that is happening today in our scripture. I would like to remind us that for most Christian churches, Pentecost ends too soon. We put a lot of freight into the first day of Pentecost. You saw last week we had a lot of stuff hanging up. And by the way, had there not been a funeral this week, it would have still been up. We talk a lot about the second chapter of Acts because there's lots of buzzers and bells and whistles. There's a burning fire, there's wind rushing, all that stuff. And then suddenly, before you know it, we've pushed on and we don't talk about Pentecost again. I need you to hear this morning that Pentecost in the scriptures lasts at least 10 chapters. At least. And every one of those chapters almost represents some sort of a unique border crossing. Something very deliberate is being done on the pages of those first 10 chapters that I want you to know. We started last week talking about the Galileans, the ones who first started talking about this. Well, remember, Galileans were Jews, but nobody liked them much because they were country hicks. They just didn't really seem to belong. So that was the first border crossing. Watch the pages unfold now. Philip, one of those who's chosen to help lead the church, encounters a Samaritan on the road. You remember about the Samaritans, right? They were part Jew and part Gentile. And so in conversation with this Samaritan, Philip baptizes him on the road. One more border crossing. Walk further. Philip then encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, a eunuch's job was very simply to guard the queen. That's all the eunuch had to do. And so they had been engineered so that they would uh, pose no threat to the queen, and so that was the job. While on the way, Philip runs into this eunuch who is reading scripture. This is a believer, but not a Jew. And so while speaking with this eunuch, the eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, nothing I can think of. And so he baptizes him there on the road. 
one more border crossing. And finally, we come to today. Peter, the rock on which the church will be built. Here's how it went. It was a, consp a spiritual conspiracy on the part of God. There was a Roman centurion whose name was Cornelius. He was a highly positioned Roman. He commanded many people, and he commanded much respect. Cornelius had a vision. An angel who came to him, and by the way, Cornelius was also an, a devout person, a God-fearer, but he was a Gentile. He had a vision of an angel who came to him and said, there's a man, by the way, he lived in Caesarea. He said, there's a man in Joppa, 34 miles away. There's a man in Joppa named Peter. I want you to send some men to go get Peter, bring him to Caesarea, and listen to what he has to say. He awakes from his dream. He sends three people to Joppa to fetch Peter. While this is all going on, or as we like to say in bad television, in the meantime, Peter is in Joppa. And he gets hungry one day while he's up on the roof of the place where he's staying, and he falls into a trance. And in his dream, once again, a vision appears. And here's the vision. Uh, a sheet comes out of heaven as if someone were holding all four corners, and inside the sheet were all manner of unclean animals. The voice of God comes to Peter and says, get up and eat. Remember, he fell into the trance because he was hungry. The voice of God said, get up and eat. Peter recognizes, of course, even in the dream, that these are unclean animals. And so he says, I've never eaten an unclean animal, and I'm not about to start now. This is a point to pause. Don't forget that for the Jews, there were two things that separated them from everybody else on the planet. Two identifiers. One was observing the Sabbath. Two, the dietary laws. It was part and parcel of who they were as a people. So it's not a small thing for Peter to get confronted even in a dream about eating an unclean animal. He says, I'm not about to do it. And this is what the voice of God came back to him and said, you must not call something unclean that I have made clean. Let that sink in. Peter wakes up. Probably not quite sure what this dream means, but wouldn't you know it, at the very minute he wakes up, in come the three from Caesarea. You think that was an accident? They say, we're looking for Simon, who's called Peter. And Peter heard them and went down and said, I'm who you're looking for, what do you want? And they said, our master, Cornelius, had a dream, and in the dream, God said to come and get you and bring you to Caesarea, and we were supposed to listen to what you say, and Peter said, fine. And off they went. Still not sure how this thing is connecting. They arrive at Caesarea. By the time they get there, the household of Cornelius is packed. Not with just his family, but with others in his circle. Peter walks into the house and says, well, I had a dream that I was supposed to follow you and come here, but I don't know why. And Cornelius says, well, my dream said that we're supposed to get you here, and you're supposed to talk to us about something. So Peter said, okay, 
and he begins to tell the story of Jesus. He starts preaching about Jesus. And then it's where you hear the scripture that David read this morning. While he was still preaching, the Holy Spirit filled the room and everybody was touched in their hearts by God's Spirit. Peter says, wow, who is out there who is capable of withholding the water of baptism from these who have received the Holy Spirit just like the rest of us have? Now, before he delivered that speech, one little caveat that I forgot to tell you, he reminded them that it was unlawful for Jews to associate with Gentiles. That came before his preaching. And now here he is saying, who can withhold water? And so he ordered the baptism of everybody in the house. And now we've taken one last giant border crossing. The Gentiles are coming. And by the way, who's a Gentile? Anybody who's not a Jew. Everybody who's not a Jew. What does that mean to us? <laughs> the doors have now been flung open, friends. It's everybody. Everyone who calls on the name of God. Regardless of who you were, regardless of who you are, those who call on the name of God, the church is for you. Well, that's a sea change. Huge. Who can, who is there in our world that we would withhold the waters of baptism? Who are we to hold the keys to the gates to keep people away? Regardless of who they are, but are they people who call on the name of God? And if they do, if the Holy Spirit has fallen on them just like it's fallen on the rest, well, there's one more thing about this story that I think we should speak of before we leave it. We talk in, in the church a lot about Pentecost being this gift of power. What does power mean? Well, I used to want to fly like Superman. I can't do that with the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I can't stop a speeding bullet. I, so what does power mean? I like to suggest that if you look at this story carefully, the power that I see from the very beginning of it was that those who believed were given a voice. Think back. The disciples, when all this happened, had been cowering, quite literally cowering in a room, scared to death that the Romans were going to find them and kill them because they were Jesus followers and they had already seen what had happened to Jesus. So they were hidden timid, voiceless. On the day of Pentecost, well, everything changed. Now, here they all are standing and speaking. And by the way, every last one of them will end up being executed. All of them. But it didn't matter. Because the power was we received a voice. And then Philip, on the road, he gets a voice about this Samaritan and then about this eunuch and then there's Peter in the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. 
He speaks. Who can withhold water? That's power. And by the way, as soon as Peter leaves there, he has to go back to Jerusalem and face the music. He has to go back to the Jerusalem church filled with devout Jews, led by James, the, the brother of Jesus, and explain his actions to them. How dare you? How dare you baptize a Gentile without our permission? Well, Peter found his voice. And he went to them and said, who can prevent them? The Apostle Paul always had a voice. We have a voice. Every one of us has a voice. How do you use yours? Most of us remember the name Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was a pioneer in the, the notion of uh, grief. She was the one who came up with the five stages of grief. And those of us who were in seminary back when I was, well, she was, she was a goddess. <laughs> we, we, we all grabbed a hold of that and we latched onto it. Since that time, we've developed more complex understandings of grief, but nobody has ever just walked away from her work. It's groundbreaking. Kubler-Ross, when she was doing her research on the five stages of grief, spent an enormous amount of time in what you and I would now call a hospice facility. She spent her days going around to patients who were imminently going to die. And that's where she discovered these five stages. There was an orderly in this hospice facility, uh, a, a large, uh, jolly, wonderful African-American woman who cleaned rooms. And Kubler-Ross began to notice that whenever this woman entered and left a room, her patients, her patients were different. They were calmer, they were content, they seemed not to be afraid. And so she sort of accosted this woman in the hallway one day and her first words out were, what are you doing to my patients? And this woman thought she was being, you know, called on the carpet. And Kubler-Ross said, no, 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 I, I want to know what you're saying to them because they're not the same after you leave their room. And this, this woman said simply, I simply tell them that I have lost a couple of children in my life, died on my lap. She said, I tell them that through it all, God never abandoned me, God never left me alone, and God told me not to be afraid. That's all I tell them. That's her voice. You have a voice? The Holy Spirit gives us voice. That's what Pentecost is for us. That's where the power is. All of this is in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.